Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? I am feeling round and fluffy. <laughs> I, not, I don't even want to get into why that is at this time, but you just have to listen to, the, to our conversation <laughs> to understand that one. I, you know, and I did listen to the conversation, and I still don't understand it. <laughs> Are you feeling a little prickly today? Yeah, maybe. I don't know why. Could it be a discussion of a cactus? That could be as well. And that's a good uh, segue for what we're talking about today. Book Club Claire is back to discuss Abdi's World, the Black Cactus on Life, Running, and Fun, written by our Shuklastani marathoner, Abdi Abdurrahman. So take a listen to our conversation. Claire, welcome back. We are talking Abdi's World today. What do you got for us? I have a story about someone who came over from Africa and eventually became a distance runner in college and then had a career that spanned so many years. It's shocking to see his athletic lifespan is so huge. So the athlete is Abdi Abdirman and the book is Abdi's World. And I enjoyed this book when I read it last year for our interview with Abdi. Make sure that you go back and listen to that because he talks all about the 10,000 meters in the marathon in detail. And I enjoyed learning a little bit more about his personal life. So initial thoughts on the book. What did you think? I thought it did a great job of capturing his voice. Having spoken to him, I heard it when I read the book. He's very open in a fun way. And he, he thinks about things, but not too hard. And the way he wrote, and obviously he was working with, as all these athletes do, they're working with co-writers and ghostwriters he captured the way Abdi would put a sentence together and the way he would hit certain points. So that I really liked. Yeah, I agree. This was a much better than average athlete memoir. And I loved the way it was put together. I loved that it sprinkled in like his philosophies on running along with his history did not he came over partially because of war going on in Somalia. His family escaped restarted here in America, but we didn't get the go from point A to point B story. It kind of jumped back and forth in time. I loved the chasing Abdi bits where you got input from other people in his life. It just, it was a really fun book to read and I really enjoyed it. And, hey, yeah, great summer reading book. I don't think I'm as high on it as the two of you were. This is from someone who adored Lopez Long's book that we read many years ago <laughs> by now. And this is a very similar style of story. So I did, did notice that things were presented just a little bit, not as I would have liked. I think it was a little scatterbrained all over the place. But I did like 
I'm a freak about track and field and I love marathons. I watch marathons for fun. So I got a big kick out of hearing his philosophies on, on running and, and hearing his race recaps and, and all that. And, and just qualify for five Olympics. That's amazing. I did appreciate how the book was broken down chapter wise because he breaks down every Olympic ring, quote unquote. So, you know, the first ring is Sydney 2000, and then his next ring is Athens 2004. And he's got the missing ring of Rio, what he was unable to qualify because of injury. I really enjoyed that kind of stuff. I did struggle, though, because he has to fly through 20 plus years, well, 20 years of history. It does end up coming and hitting a lot of repetitive things. Oh, Boston. Oh, New York. Oh, then they'll go through Olympic trials. When does he get hurt? I can't remember. <laughs> so there, there was a little bit of that here and there. You had mentioned the chasing opti parts. Did you have one in particular that you remembered or enjoyed? Well, he had. There was one I think that was like his five rules for life. Towards the middle of the book, that was kind of fun, and and it was just fun to have those those bits in there, especially when you're doing a summer reading, because you can read this in little chunks or read those quotes. And he includes quotes from interviews that he's done. And because the question is different, you get a different perspective of what he's going to say. So I did like those chasing obdies and it could feel scattered, but it also broke the flow of how many races can we talk about? You know, how many times can you talk about Boston, New York, this trip, this injury? Um, and it was like, oh, here, somebody asked him an interesting question or, oh, he got an award and he said this. So I, that made it fun. You brought up Lopez Lemong, and I liked the fact that Abdi's story was different from Lopez's story. They did ha both come from war-torn areas of Africa, but their families had different experiences and they had different experiences. And I liked the way Lopez's book was told, his story was told, that worked as well in a different way because I think Lopez really had a lot more personal struggles and financial hardship type struggles and not that Abdi's family didn't mm -hmm. but I think that his situation was different and I kind of like how those two books were different telling so a little bit similar stories but they did it differently so we didn't get the same like oh it's kind of like the biopic Thing. Oh, this is where the music swells and this is where it goes down. But I think they're, they can stand, each have merit on their own. I felt like those were almost sibling books. I like that we've, we've read them both because, like you said, the childhood portion of Lopez's story was much heavier. I mean, he went through things that Abdi did not go through. Abdi had his family when he came to the United States. They were intact. Lopez did not. He went through things that Abdi did not. And it was this similar young man, you know, escaping, like you said, a war-torn African country, becoming a distance runner in the United States. But they're very different stories. And yet they are friends. You know, Lopez and Abdi are friends, obviously, because they do have similar backgrounds and they are in this competition together. And so it's kind of like this is the summer version and Lopez is the, the autumn version of a similar story, right? Because Lopez's book is much heavier and much more serious and, and talking about more of the global political issues than Abdi's book. 
Lopez Lamont's book is literally called Running for My Life. <laughs> it has multiple meetings. But and then Obdi's Obdi's World, which reminds me of if you remember the old TV show Bobby's World, the, the cartoon. So <laughs> definitely have different uh, genres there. It's kind of funny though, putting on my athletics nerd cap. Lamont started in the mile and transitioned to the. He's now doing the five k, ten k. That's what he qualified for in Tokyo. And Abdi started in the ten k and now has moved to marathon. So apparently, as you grow with age you are able to take on more distance and be still be competitive. Which well, is incredible. Abdi, Abdi talks about that in that section where he, he changes from doing the 10 to devoting to the marathon. And that is a common transition for older distance runners because you do see marathoners mostly in their thirties. I mean, these are not 18, 19 year olds winning the marathon. They do tend to be on the older end of athletics competitors. And I wonder why that is. I mean, we need to get some more information on marathon to know why can you still succeed in the marathon as you age? What endurance holds on, but the kick doesn't, you know, where is that transition? Maybe you just have more patience and you can, you know, it's more skill. You know, the marathon requires more skill in a certain way because you've got to do more strategy because you're just out there for longer. And you have to start slow which if you're in the throes of energy, it's very hard to do. And you're supposed to get progressively faster as you go, which is insane to think about. For 26 miles, your, mi- your uh, mile pace is supposed to speed up. It's like, oh my gosh, it's definitely not what I do when I'm training. I have to give credit to his coach. He doesn't mention his coach too much. Dave Murray, I think is his name. But when he does mention him, he, he mentions how very hands-off, allows Abdi to develop in the right ways, doesn't go to the Olympics with him. That was, I thought was very interesting because a lot of people, you know, they have to bring their whole support staff with them wherever they go. And his coach doesn't go. And he thinks that it's kind of his chance now to to take what he's learned and, and move on. And I have to say this because I just recently watched the Peacock documentary about Alberto Salazar which is a very different style of coaching than what we read about in this book. And hearing that was was very refreshing, knowing that not all coaches are as hard-nosed and openly critical as someone like Salazar is. Um, yeah, Salazar is the style of coaching that lands you in prison. Or just banned, <laughs> which is where he is right now. The idea that his coach wasn't there reminded me of that scene in Chariots to Fire, now that we've watched it ages ago, where the coach is back in the hotel room listening to the race and he because he wasn't allowed into the Olympic Stadium with him because he wasn't the official coach. And I kind of imagined Abdi's coach, you know, with a straw hat and punching his hand through it when when Abdi wins, which is totally inaccurate. (laughs) But it was it was fun to kind of put those two things together that the coach coaches and then lets them go race. And like you were saying, is that hands-off attitude. And having spoken to Abdi, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, he gets everything done ahead of time. And then when it's the day of the race, he needs to race, not be making adjustments or changes or fiddling with things. Or wearing a watch. So yeah, uh, yeah I, I re-listened to our podcast and that was one of the things that he mentioned in it. And I it's like, why doesn't? And then, you know, going back to the book, it's like, well, yeah, he wouldn't. Yeah. And it's just 
so interesting to see such a different style of runner, his approach. And maybe that's why he got a book deal, because he is somebody who doesn't wear watch. And not that he doesn't care, but just like so many of the things that other athletes get into, like, oh, what are my stats today? You know, let's crank out the analytics stuff. And he's like, eh, if it doesn't feel good, I'm going to drive. If I'm not feeling good, I'm going to drop out of the race or what? That kind of thing. But it isn't lackadaisical. And no. it is not commitment. It's just the way he works is very different. Mm -hmm. And it works for him. I mean, obviously, he's had this mega long career. It has kept him healthy. I mean, obviously, he's had injuries, but he still was there. He still qualified for all of these races. Yeah. And it, it's nice to see that, oh, there's not one way to be successful. And Abdi found what works for him, and he's very good about advocating for himself. And this is how this is the kind of training that works for me. Found a coach that works for him, and yeah, a long career because of it. With a long career, you are going to, and he mentions this where you notice people come in and exit before you're even done. One of those people that he talks about is uh, Ryan Shea. And I was not aware of this story because I wasn't deep into marathoning when this happened, but Ryan Shea actually died on the marathon course and Abdi didn't really find out about it until it was much too late. Uh, this was at the New York marathon and they were friends. They were training partners. He stayed with him and his wife for during training. It's got to be the worst and the most surreal thing to have someone that you know pass away doing the thing that you train to do every day. And honestly, I didn't see it coming, but I did notice he was suddenly mentioning Ryan and Alicia Shea a lot more. And I'm going, where's this going? And then he mentions that someone just says, I can't believe Ryan is gone. And he's like, yeah, he must've dropped out of the race. And then he's like, no, 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 no. He died on the course. Did you, either of you know about that story? And did that hit that? come as a shock as much as it did to me? I was not familiar because I generally don't watch a lot of marathons or I watch them very casually. So the names are not terribly familiar. I did not remember that. And I was surprised in the, in the book going, oh, wait a second, where, where did this? And the other thing that surprised me was there was a, the doping story that also, when he mentions how he had trained with these two athletes who then were found to have doped, I was also with Martin Fagan being one, one of them. And I was like, oh, wait, I don't remember this story either. So there was a lot of pieces that are specialized in these fields. And you probably didn't hear a lot about it outside the marathon world. Looking at that doping story that you mentioned is very interesting because he doesn't really pull his punches with it. He states clearly that what they did was wrong. He was never aware that anything was happening. And he does put his philosophy out there. He's not like, oh, you know, it was a sad time that we moved on. And he, he states it and he says it, which I'm very glad about. I know that by the tail end of his career, trying to do any sort of doping would, would probably hinder his chances more than help it. And I know he's been aware of that for many years, but I was glad that he did mention that. And he wasn't afraid to bring it up in, in this book. A, a book that we just mentioned is kind of a more jovial, you know, he talks about himself as the black cactus kind of story. But I'm glad he does get into the deeper things every now and then. I also like that he made 
a very interesting distinction between those people could have been his friends. He can care about them. He can respect them as people and still condemn what they did. And I thought that was an interesting distinction that I certainly don't always make to remember that someone who dopes can be a decent person and have made a huge mistake for whatever reason. And I like that distinction. And he, like you said, he does not pull his punches in condemning doping. He was very firm and very straight and yet still said, these people were still my friends. I still care about them. They screwed up. The one thing I had wished for more of was more about the Olympics. Because he does kind of bookend each section with talking about the games. But he just mentions the races very briefly. He doesn't really talk too much about opening closing ceremonies, going to the athlete's village. He mentions briefly snippets here and there, but mostly it's about the actual training that he does to get to the Olympics. And that's that's the one thing I kind of wish we had more of, especially because there were so many. Talk about the differences between all the Olympics that you've been to. That I would have liked to have seen more. But I wonder if he is paying attention to himself, as we've talked about, as kind of his training methods, his style. And the marathon's always at the end, so it's not like he gets a lot of time to hang out in the village not preparing for his race. But the 10,000 is at the beginning. That's true. When he was doing Mm 10,000, he may have. Still, it's something where the point of the book is to show him as he is growing in his experiences as a runner. And I think that it did it very well. It does end before Tokyo. He finished the book during the pandemic. I think he actually started the book because of the pandemic. So that's why we get to enjoy this book now. We know that he finished, I believe he did finish the race in Tokyo. Yes. In, in Sorry, in Sapporo. And he finished 41st, very far back, but understandable given the conditions that, that he had. I am very glad that he finished because he does mention when you have to give up halfway, it's very disheartening. But I'm, I'm glad that he finished. I don't know if he's done. doesn't sound like he's done. But he's got his girlfriend, and I'm wishing all the best for him. Do you have anything else that you want to add about Abdi? I do. So his nickname is the Black Cactus, which is adorable. So I was thinking, if I was a nicknamed after a plant, what would it be? So I want you to think about if you were nicknamed after a plant, what would it be? I came up with mine. I would be the hydrangea because I'm kind of big and round. And every once in a while, something really pretty pops out like, hello. But for the rest of the year, I look sort of bland. <laughs> I had to be some sort of tree because I'm, I'm pointy at the top and I kind of flare out at the bottom. I couldn't tell you what, because I don't know plants. So sorry about that. A Norwegian spruce. <laughs> <laughs> except, I'm, except I'm very much Greek and Norwegian. Could oh, be an could olive be tree. Cypress. There we go. Okay. So Claire's the olive tree or cypress or whenever. <laughs> what about Jill? An olive tree is extremely high maintenance and you do not strike me as a high maintenance person. So I'm going to go with cypress for you. Okay. I'll take that. Now, but now you have to pick out something for Jill. Yeah. You got to, you got to pick something out for me. Cause I don't know what I would be like squash. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so many different kinds of squash. You got to pick one. <laughs> you are my little butternut squash. <laughs> Okay. I'll Can we put that in the store? <laughs> Have a picture of Jill. You are my little butternut squash. 
I'd buy it. <laughs> Sarah, you'd buy it too, right? Meredith? Yes. <laughs> Patrick? Talking to you. <laughs> All right. I well. think we are done. <laughs> well, Claire, thank you so much. That's Actually, that's kind of a perfect way to end a book by Abdi, <laughs> to be quite honest. What are we reading next? Our next book for the winter is Snowball's Chance, the story of the 1960 Olympic Winter Games, Squaw Valley and Lake Tahoe by David Antonucci. Now, this is going to be an interesting one because they did just change the name of Squaw Valley, which is great. But it's going to be interesting to see if there's any historical background that they mention in this book. So make sure if you're reading that to kind of take a mental note of that. But I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we get to enjoy some winter Olympics again. Yes. And some Walt Disney. Always love Walt Disney. Right, Claire. Thank you so much. We are looking forward to talking with you again soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Claire. You can buy Snowball's Chance through our bookshop.org link. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash flamealivepod. Purchases made through our storefront will help us earn a commission, and that helps us with the podcast budget, especially as we look towards Paris 2024. So get your copy today, and our next book club meeting will be in session in early November. that sound means it's time for our history moment all year long we are looking at albertville 1992 because it is the 30th anniversary of those winter games allison it is your turn for a story what do you have for me okay all five gold medals won by team usa in 1992 were won by women interestingly enough huh two for speed skater bonnie blair one for figure skater Christy Amaguchi, which we talked about. One for freestyle skier Donna Weinbrecht, and we talked about that when we talked to Tom Kelly. But the one I'm going to talk about today is for short track speed skater Kathy Turner. Kathy Turner won the U.S. Short Track Championships in 1979, but she retired from the sport in 1980 to pursue a career in music. So by the mid-80s, she was a bar singer in Las Vegas under the name of Nikki Newland. Wow. Don't you wish, like, there's a recording of that somewhere? I have not found any performances of Nikki Newland, but she is, a, she is in IMDb as such. So when she saw a short track as a demonstration sport in 1988, she decided to come out of retirement and try for the 92 Olympics. So made the team, turned around, won gold in the 500 meters, which was the only individual event for women at that Games. Really? Like, were there more individual events for men? I don't think so, but there were relays, and the U.S. women's team also won a silver in the relay. She stuck around for Lillehammer, and she defended her 500-meter gold, and added two more relay medals. Good for her. But here's where it gets really fun. In 1992, Kathy Turner also performed in Ice Capades, where she both skated and sang. Wow. And that's kind of possible because of the change in the rules, because amateurs could now make money in their sport. Correct. And she was one of the American gladiators 
on that television program. What? <laughs> so Kathy Turner, short-tracked gold medalists, and so many other things. Amazing. Welcome to Shuklistan. It is time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show who are now citizens of our very own country, Shuklistan. And and I got to say, looking back to last week when we had some of the Shuklistanis on for a lightning round, all week long I've thought about crawling in my own vomit. No, thank you. <laughs> And then if you haven't listened to last week's show, you should, because that's what Madeline Manning Mims talked about. And I've been training for a century bike ride. And sometimes I think about how hard training is going to get. You need some donuts. I have one. It's already around my belly. <laughs> what have our Shukvastani's been doing, Jill? All right. Marnie McBean told the CBC that she had been asked to sit on a Hockey Canada Oversight Committee of independent experts who would be tasked with monitoring and providing guidance on the organization's plan to eliminate toxic behavior in the sport. And she said she'd consider joining the committee if top Hockey Canada officials were removed. And apparently the offer to her to join the committee was then rescinded a few days later. Oh, not surprised. Hockey Canada's got some issues going right now. Nordic combined athlete Annika Malasinski finished 14th overall in the second Summer Grand Prix event of the season at Oberstdorf, Germany. She will be competing in the Jumpapalooza. That's the best name, which is the USA Nordic Sport National Championships for ski jumping and Nordic combined, which will be held at Lake Placid, New York. On Friday, September 30th and Saturday, October 1st. Sport climber Josh Levin made it to the final stage of American Ninja Warrior, but he could not climb up Mount Midoriyama within the time limit. He ended up finishing fifth place overall. Congratulations to Josh. This was an incredible feat because he worked so hard to get past stage two on Ninja Warrior. So to get through stage three and into stage four was a tremendous accomplishment. He said he would be donating a portion of his winnings to Adaptive Climbing Group in New York. Racewalker Evan Dunphy is now officially adding candidate to his list of titles. He has made it to the ballot of the Richmond City Council, and we will have a link to his campaign. Speed skater Erin Jackson is back on wheels. She competed in the Outdoor National Championships and Team USA inline trials. She took gold in the 200-meter, 500-meter, 100-meter, and 10K elimination races, plus fourth in the 10K points race. And at the 49er, 49er FX, and NACRA 17 World Championships, Stephanie Robel and Maggie Shea finished fifth. They won the last race of the regatta. And they pulled up from 22nd wow. up to 5th. Good for them. Good good race in the new boat. Former biathlete Claire Egan was elected to the World Anti-Doping Agency Athletes Council. So congratulations to her. Boxer Ginny Fuchs will be fighting Gemma Rugg in the flyweight division this Saturday in London. This fight is part of the undercard with Clarissa Shields and Savannah Marshall as the main fight. 
It will air on ESPN Plus in the United States and on Sky Sports in the UK. And finally, get well wishes to John Moorhead, who has COVID. He says he's doing better, but still, hope long COVID doesn't get you, John. Those middle school kids (laughs) bringing all the germs. We definitely do not have music for 1972. We we do not. And we also do not have any kind of sad music, I should say. But we did want to acknowledge that this week marked the 50th anniversary of the hostage massacre at Munich 1972, where 11 members of the Israeli team were taken hostage in the village and subsequently murdered along with a German policeman. The terrorists were Palestinians who demanded the release of hundreds of Palestinian political prisoners. And Israel's Prime Minister Golda Meir said, I refuse to negotiate with terrorists. So that stopped that negotiation. The German government had to deal with the situation at hand. Their plan botched up everything really badly. That led to the unfortunate deaths of all of the these team members. It's been a trying time for the families for decades. They've been trying to get proper recognition. Finally got a moment of silence at the opening ceremony at Tokyo 2020. And remember what a shocker that was? We were both stunned and noticed that and couldn't believe it had finally happened. Right. And and it'll, I'm curious to see if it will continue to happen because I do think it should continue to happen. Absolutely. Recently, the families of the victims and the German government reached an agreement on compensation for the tragedy. The families will receive a total of 28 million euros. But that cannot compensate for the loss of life, truly. There was a memorial ceremony in Munich at the Olympic Park and also at the airfield in Furstenfeldbruck, where most of the victims perished. Dignitaries from Germany, Israel, and the IOC attended. Thomas Bach gave a speech about how September 5 was the darkest day in Olympic history and reminded everyone that the Olympics stood for peace. He also commended Israel for not turning its back on the Olympic movement as the country has taken part in every subsequent games, which, you know, you think about it, they could easily have said, no, no more. And they have faced issues where competitors have refused to compete against Israeli athletes. Yes. So it's not like it's been smooth sailing for Israel since 1972. So and they have been very successful and were particularly successful in Tokyo. That is true. That is true. So our thoughts go out to the families, to the country, to to the even to the IOC and Olympic movement because it's just a, a horrible event to have happened to anyone and hopefully it will not happen at an Olympic Games again. So speaking of Tokyo, I, I don't even know. You know, th- this is the the bright side that I can think of, is that everyone who's involved in the Salt Lake City bribery scandal is probably going, oh, maybe they can forget about us. Yeah, this is getting uglier. So more two more companies are being investigated about bribe. This would be advertising firm Daiko Advertising, Inc., and publishing company Kadokawa Corp., And they are being investigated over payments to a consulting firm run by an acquaintance of Haruki Takahashi, who was a member of the Tokyo 2020 Executive Board. In in those payments were supposedly 
those payments allegedly were in return for favors during the sponsorship selection process, according to the Kyoto News. And Takahashi is already in hot water for potential bribing from another company as well. So this just keeps piling on. Well, more than hot water, he's already been indicted on that one. Meanwhile, Sapporo's mayor, Katsuhiro Akimoto, was supposed to go to Lausanne to discuss the 2030 Winter Games with the IOC, and that meeting got canceled. Kyoto News reports that the mayor said that this has nothing to do with bribery scandal, and it's all about timing, but the Kyoto News also noted that the meeting had been on the books for months. Sapporo must be so angry at the Tokyo Organizing Committee for so many reasons. So first, we had Mara Novella, where they just threw the marathon in Sapporo's lap at the last minute, and the city had to scramble to put it on. And now all this bribery scandal totally gutting Sapporo's bid for the 2030 Winter Games. Right. And and I haven't looked much at the financials for the Vancouver Whistler First Nations bid. But if that's not going to pan out, which hopefully it would, then we're down to just Salt Lake City being able to do it. And you'd have the whole issue of having back-to-back games in the USA. Never mind being reminded of the Salt Lake City bribery (laughs) scandal. (laughs) Come on, Canadians, pull this out for us. (laughs) But not Hockey Canada. They can't be involved. No. Is Paris doing any better? No. No. They are still having issues with the budget. And inflation is really making it hard for them, it sounds like. The IOC Coordination Commission did visit Paris 2024. And the French Minister for Sport and the Olympic and Paralympic Games, Amélie Ouidea-Castera, asked the Coordination Commission to quote, revise the specifications downwards a little. And this is this is quoting from a francsjeu.com, a, a translation of the story. So not only is that a request, it's a repeat request to let's, can we tone it down a little, make it a little cheaper? Because even the OCOG head, Tony Escangay, has said that keeping up with the level and keeping up the level of ambition until the end will be a real challenge. We are going to need your help to find new sources of optimization and to go even further in making savings. So remember when, when did we talk about the torch relay and how long people had to run? That was a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the Alberville moment. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if those people who trained for 92 and their miles-long fast <laughs> speed could somehow be used in transport <laughs> to save some money for Paris 2024. Well, they have talked about relying more on the metro and public transportation versus having cars and probably even buses to take people around. I wonder if maybe finding... A new source of optimization might be maybe not having the surfing competition in Tahiti. Yeah, they have competitions in Tahiti. They have competitions in Marseille. They're all over the place. 
Well, some of them, I mean, obviously the football tournament, it's going to be everywhere because you need to have the stadiums. Marseille, I understand because you've got to have sailing on the coast somewhere. So I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. But I, I do wonder if some of the technical specifications would be decreased and everything gets to a point. We need to harken back to London 1948 and have an austerity Olympics again, maybe. And everyone bring their own food. Because, you know, stuff just keeps getting bigger and better and every, everyone wants to outdo the last one. But it does come to a breaking point that you can't put on so many bells and whistles anymore. And when inflation and the economy are giving you issues, you got to take some of those bells and whistles away and be okay with it and not stick Paris with a horrible bill. You know, we talked about that a lot with Tokyo because we thought... Because they had to cut back some of those bells and whistles and pomp and circumstance because of COVID, would that be a turning point to some of these other host cities dialing it back a bit? And unfortunately, they're not doing it. Everything is telling them you need to dial this back. And yet they're still just trying to dump money at the problem. Yeah, and I I don't think it's necessarily the Paris organizing committee, I don't know if it's pressure from the IOC to say, oh, this is the first one back. We need to make sure. But th there may be specifications that have just gotten into the, well, this is the way we've quote unquote always done it. And we are very used to this and can't give it up. But there are a lot of things that are very much that I would think are nice to haves that are expensive. Seriously, we need to look at their budget. We will cut that thing back like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Coordination Commission says things are on track and they're happy with progress. <laughs> Better be. Franck Chou also reports that the French Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne announced that Paris will have 1,000 new police officers in the city in time for the games. I am concerned a, a little bit about this next one because it's just going to be stunts. And... PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of an Animals, has apparently written a very official letter to Thomas Bach, according to Frank Shu. What makes it very official as opposed to just official? Letterhead? An extra paw print? <laughs> so they, they wrote to T. Bach and they asked him to intervene in the negotiations between the Paris 2024 Organizing Committee and LVMH for a potential sponsorship possibility. LVMH owns Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton sells fur and items made from exotic animal skins. So I, if Paris 2024 needs the sponsorship money, for sure. Right. They're not going to say PETA doesn't want this. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> when, when I hear you say it like that, because that's a matter of fact, you just go, really, PETA? You think? Paris needs the money. This is an iconic company in France. But I, I also worry that PETA's got to get up to its stunts and just do something really weird to get attention. Well, remember, Paris is developing those anti-drone lasers. Oh, okay. So maybe they'll aim some at an anti-PETA laser. <laughs> Oh, my God, there are so many things that could burst into flames in this city. I am very concerned now. Right. And and I understand that, that 
PETA wants ethical treatment of animals, obviously, because that's what its name is. But it, it does do a lot of stunts and may not be the world's best organization to do that from some some of my understanding of what that organization is about. Interesting feed news. Is it feed beef? No, well, beef I, no, it, it is some education on where to direct your feed beefs should you have them for Paris. OBS has entered into an agreement. This is the Olympic Broadcasting Service. They've entered into an agreement with China Media Group, also known as CMG, to provide the international feed for several sports at Paris 2024. CMG will do gymnastics, table tennis, badminton, and sports climbing. So when you have your feed beef, if it's in one of those sports directed at CMG, it's like OBS has outsourced some of their stuff. Wow. And it's kind of funny because when we were in Beijing, OBS had hired so many locals as technicians and staff. And now are we re-importing that staff for when the Olympics is in Europe? All of a sudden, the Chinese techs that they trained now will work for the subcontractor. Could be. And and CMG has worked with the games ever, for every game since Athens 2004. So this is not new in a sense that we're suddenly having CMG work with OBS. They've provided some kind of production role for every game's since 2004 they've also provided support to obs in the production of the world feed for beijing 2022 which is totally understandable given all of the uh, covid protocols surrounding those games so inside the games thank you for a very informative article which has a lot of meaning to to us All right, we've got a little bit of news from LA 2028. The sports examiner, our friend Rich Perlman and Inside the Games, both reported that the rowing course is going to be moved from the original plan, from the original bid proposal. So the original bid said that the rowing would be at Lake Paris State Recreation Area in Riverside County. And World Rowing has approved a move to Long Beach Marine Stadium, which was the site of the 1932 Olympics rowing competition. The reason why this is such kind of a controversial move is that the rowing course usually is 2,000 meters long because a bridge was built spanning the river area where the rowing competition is. The course can only be 1,500 meters long. So this is going to be the shortest rowing course at an Olympics ever. I do love that it'll be the same as 1932. I love that connection, but I can obviously see why rowing has evolved a lot in almost 90 years. So it, I can see that being problematic as well. Yeah, but I, I mean, what's also interesting is the course has changed from uh, over the decades, you'll have longer courses and shorter courses. I think from, I don't know too much about the goings on behind the scenes of the whys and, and what, but I could speculate. If we're talking the LA Memorial Coliseum as being like the home base of the LA games. Lake Paris is about 75 miles away. Long Beach is 28 miles away, much closer they also have a whole bunch of other sports going on 
in Long Beach. So they've got BMX cycling, water polo, handball, triathlon, paratriathlon, and marathon swimming. And you add in rowing at a venue that already exists. And it's one less thing to do and one less area for athletes to be because I bet they would have to have some sort of athletes village out at Lake Paris because there's no way to get people out 75 miles. Especially not in LA traffic. Right. (laughs) So I, I haven't got a chance to look further into this, but Canoe is also supposed to be at Lake Paris. I would be very curious to see if they will move that to Long Beach as well. That way that knocks out one whole venue that was planned and enjoy the cost savings. And not only that, it's a benefit for fans because now you could make a trip to Long Beach and have several days of competition there. So it makes going to that venue worthwhile for a multi-day stay. Exactly. And, And many more sports to choose from now as well. So this is not a totally done deal yet. The Long Beach City Council needs to approve this as well, but hopefully they will. One note from the International Paralympic Committee wanted to say that the Constitution that they passed last year has been ratified by the German Registry of Associations. So now everything is legal there. The main changes to their constitution were that IPC sports that were governed by the IPC will be becoming independent by 2026. And the other big one is it created a nominations panel to do vetting of people who would serve on committees. That is according to Inside the Games. We got to look into when their special session is going to be there. Oh, that's right. So in Beijing, because of the whole Russia-Ukraine controversy, the IPC is going to have a special emergency session that they want to change the constitution again. So I think that was supposed to be coming this coming winter, January, February, sticks in my head. Something like that. But we will definitely... Definitely look into that and keep on top of what will happen with that. Oh, you know, one thing I forgot to mention from our book club discussion. I want to know what kind of plant the listeners would be. So, Allison is a hydrangea. I am round and fluffy. Book club Claire is a cypress. I am a butternut squash. So you, listeners, what would you be if you could be a plant? And have you ever thought of this? (laughs) Because... This was just kind of a surreal way to end a discussion, I will say. I bring the surreal. And if you (laughs) want to bring the surreal back to us, please email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. You can hit us up on social at flamealivepod or find the conversation in the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Hey, next week, we are going to talk para powerlifting with Paralympic bronze medalist Louise Sugden. So excited. She was so much fun to talk to, and we cannot wait to bring you this conversation. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs> <laughs>